The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, as we begin the new study called Amazing Joy, you can kind of think, whoa, this should be fun. Uh, We're centering our study on the book of Philippians. You know, over the years, whether I'm counseling somebody or sitting in a Bible study or, or maybe just chatting with somebody over coffee, the same question always comes out. How do I get the life the Bible talks about? Whether I'm in the Old Testament looking at Joshua, Joseph, Naomi, Ruth, or in the New Testament looking at a a Paul or John or whatever, how on earth do I get a life like them? I mean, these people are kind of super saints. As we go through the book of Philippians, there are some amazing things that are laid out in this book that are much clearer than any other books in the Bible. But I have to tell you that this week, working on this, I struggled with two main emotions. And it's kind of funny because Cindy McNeil came up to me this morning and she said, are you okay? She says, was your week okay? And I said, well, yeah, why? And she goes, well, for some reason, God really put you on my heart, and I was praying for you all the time back and forth to work. And as I thought about that, I said to Cindy, I said, no, the week was good, but when I walked away, I I suddenly began to think back. Then in preparing this study, there were two heavy emotions that I dealt with. One was, wow, the amazing life that is ours. And the other one was, will we take it? Will we take it? You know, it's one thing to read the Bible and read stories and get all excited, either a message or, or something on tape or, or reading a book, and you get all fired up. But when we walk away it seems like the desire, the drive, the emotion to hang with it goes with it. Now, the key we need to be reminded of, and very important for us to get right at the beginning here, the key to be reminded about is that there is a battle for your mind. As your mind goes, so goes your life. We're bombarded every day with the things of this world. John Stott One of the great commentary writers and preachers said, the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the mind. Every choice you make is the choice you want to make. What is governing your choices is what feeds your mind. Your will is simply the handmaiden of your affections. And as your affections go, so goes your will. Now, I need to give you a huge caution right now because you're not about to get a series that's a motivational series. There's enough of those going around. We're not going to be talking about how to conceive and achieve and how to be positive thinking and and how to get everything in life you want. No, in fact, quite actually the opposite. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says, Finally, brothers... Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Napoleon Hill, probably one of the founding fathers of the motivational movement in the early 20th century, made a statement that's been published to this day. He says, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Now, that's reasonable, reasonable counsel. But I would suggest to you for the Christian, whatever God conceives and you believe, you achieve. Because you see, our life is to be centered around Christ. Our life is to gain its direction and motivation from Him. And this morning as we begin this study in the book, that's probably helped more Christians grasp and understand the exchange life. It demonstrates how God intends the Christian to live. It gives us a roadmap and a very clear design of what is for each one of us. Now, the letter to Philippians is one of the most joyous of books in, in the Bible. All the way through, Paul speaks of inner joy and inner happiness 16 times, in fact, in just the four chapters. And he does it in such a way that we know the one who advised the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always had himself found the source of true joy. He had not only learned in whatever state he was in to be content, he had learned to rejoice in whatever state he was in. He overflowed with rejoicing. Now, Christians have always known that there's more to the Christian life. I mean, haven't you gone to bed at night and some, sometimes and just said, there's got to be more. What am I missing? Why isn't my life like the way the Bible says it should be? Well, there are tremendous verses all through the book of Philippians, but let me just highlight a couple that we're going to see over the next weeks. Chapter 1, verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Chapter 4, verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This book comes with immense joy, but it also comes with an immense price. And the price is you. The surrender of yourself, the dying, literally dying to yourself. You know, Jim Elliott, one of the great missionaries, I say great missionaries, he wasn't a missionary for long if you've ever read the book Through Gates of Splendor. You know that he was a very charismatic young man in Bible college, had tremendous life before him, and he was going to be a missionary to the Aka Indians in South America. And they were planning and planning and everything going on, and when they finally started off on their first trip, they, they flew over the villages there, dropping trinkets and presents and stuff, trying to gain the trust of this lost tribe back in the, in the jungles. And when they felt it was time, they landed their plane on the beach, and slowly but surely, these Aka Indians came out. But what happened was, 
within a few moments, the Indians attacked them and killed them all. When he was in college, one of his friends said to him, you got so much to live for. Why take your life and send it to the jungles? And he made a statement that's maybe one of the most powerful statements a missionary has ever made. He said, quote, No man is a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Allow those words to penetrate your heart. No man is a fool who gives up what he can't keep anyway to gain what he cannot lose. The book of Philippians is also noteworthy for its great doctrinal statements. It's not intended to be a doctrinal treatise as are Romans and Galatians, but it is filled with doctrine. Paul oozed doctrine from his pores. Consequently, the great expressions of Christ's truth are all through the book. For example, the entire argument for Romans is found in one verse in the third chapter where Paul writes of his desire to be found in Christ. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Christ, through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. You see, our righteousness is not our own. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is filthy rags. But when we take Christ as our Savior, he imputes to us his righteousness. And this is why the basic motivational messages the world offers today don't work. Oh, it, it can work to a point. But for the child of God, sold out to God, it is God working in and through you his will. And that's what is so critical for us to understand. The sum of the teaching about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 can be summed up in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What an amazing truth. No matter what you're going through physically, there's coming a day when you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. The greatest doctrinal passage about Christ in the entire Bible uh, is in this book, is found in this book, in the section that tells about how Christ veiled his attributes and came down to earth to become a man in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So what I want to do this morning by way of introduction is just take a few minutes to look at the mind of these people. First of all, we need to understand the mind of Paul. In a very special way, the book of Philippians reveals the mind of Paul. Paul's mind was an ongoing example of what our mind should reflect. Paul's mind was full of peace and rejoicing in preaching the gospel. And that's pretty amazing when you realize what he went through. Being shipwrecked multiple times, being trapped on islands, bit by vipers, whipped with a cat of nine tails within inches of his life, yet he rejoiced and continually praised God. What, must, what must, we must also remember is where Paul is writing this. He's writing it at the end of his life. He's writing it in a situation where intimate execution is at hand. He was writing from a Roman jail. Hardly anyone remembered him. Except for Titus, a few friends, and Aphrodite, Paul was alone. In spite of Paul's faithfulness, he dealt with difficult situations victoriously and with praise. 
Paul wrote to the Philippians that there were jealous Christians in Rome, Christians who preached out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. He alludes to the friction in other books. He says that most Christians had deserted him. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, he says, May the Lord grant mercy on the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly until he found me. I mean, imagine, here is one of the most amazing men who ever lived, and people don't even know where he is. They've lost track of him. Everybody's off doing their own thing. And Onesiphorus had to hunt for him, had to hunt him down. That's going to bug me because I had that down pat too. But think of it, this great man. He writes with joy, rejoicing in the riches that belong to all believers. So you'd say, okay, I get that. But come on, that's Paul. I mean, Paul is not like normal people. Paul had a special call. I mean, if I got knocked off my horse and blinded by a bright light, I'd probably follow real close too, right? What was different about Paul? What was Paul's secret? Why did Paul have joy in a peace like that? And why do so few of us in affluent America have peace? What was Paul's secret? What was the key that he found? What was it that made him different? Now, we're going to continue to explore this in the weeks to come. But the very first point that you need to get down and understand Because if you don't understand this, you will miss the whole message of the book of Philippians. What Paul grasped and understood was that he had to fill his mind with Christ. He had to fill his mind with Christ. Now there is a fact that the human mind cannot think of two things at the same time. Try it sometime. Try to think of two things at the same time. You can't be thinking about the pain in your back and think about praising Jesus Christ. And Paul knew this. He knew it theoretically and he knew it practically. Consequently, he filled his mind with Christ. Now, we, we see this in a number of times Paul speaks of the name of Christ. In fact, did you know that 17 times alone in the first chapter, Christ or Jesus Christ is mentioned? Paul longed to know Jesus, and he longed to know him well. He had, a, he had achieved many things, humanly speaking. I mean, he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee. The Scripture tells us that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the king teacher at that time. He had achieved the highest rank he could. He had achieved wealth. Everything you could possibly want, he had achieved. Yet... In Philippians 3, verse 8, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The word for rubbish in the literal translation is dung or waste or the other word we all know. It was waste. It's what the body gets rid of to keep the health of the body going. And Paul took all his achievements. 
of this world, and he counted them as dung compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. Now, when we closed out our, our study last week in Joshua, I drew your attention to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And it said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what we established there was the reality that when Christ marked you out in eternity past, he also marked out for you and I a life of victory, joy, peace, happiness. He marked it out for us. Now, not ease, comfort, and pleasure. Because if you recall, we said that while God gave Joshua and Israel the promised land, they had to fight seven years to take it. This life is not easy. It never will be. And if you're looking for a study that will show you how to skate through life, you're in the wrong place. It's difficult. But the reality is, before the foundation of the world, God marked out a life for each one of us that will allow you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because he's with you. It's a life that will guard your heart and keep it in Christ. It's a life that will guard your motivation, your excitement, your peace in the midst of the storm. It is a life where you can sit down and go, it is well with my soul. That life is marked out for you. And Philippians is going to, in clear detail, instruct you and I on that life. So it brings me back to that question again. Will you take it? Will you be willing to take your life and push it aside in order to have the life he wants for you? Now, maybe you think this is only an ideal, something possible for a Paul or some high and mighty Christians, but not for you. Well, think about this for a minute. During the course of the week, what do you think about? When you're not working, when you have your alone time, go to movies, read books, go out to dinner. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's great. But what do you spend in gaining the mind of Christ. You can do it. I can do it. But it takes a concerted effort. And you have to understand that to be filled with Christ is the secret of real Christian living. It is the secret of true happiness. It was Paul's secret, and it's available to you and I. Now, over... The last 30-plus years of teaching and and now preaching, sometimes people will come and they'll say, how how do you get that concept? How how, how do you get that thing down? Well, sure, it's study, but it's seeking God. And you know what? Everyone can have the same thing. Don't wait on the preacher. Don't wait on the teacher. Dig in yourself and understand the mind of Christ because the book of Philippians is going to make very clear to you that there is a mind of Christ and that mind is to be your mind. That's the mind that Paul is trying to drive home here. So with that in mind, 
What about the mind of Christ? It's true that the letter to the Philippians is an opening into the mind of Paul, a fellow Christian who opens up uh, the mind available to you and I. But what is much more important is that it also gives us the mind of Christ. It tells us why he came and why he saves and why he leads us. Few sections of the Bible give us a comparable uh, picture. There's nothing like it in the great doctrinal books. They tell the meaning of Jesus' coming and the significance of his life and ministry, uh, his death, his resurrection, but they don't tell us as much about the workings of Christ's mind. These insights are not really given in the Gospels either, for these are a record of what Jesus said and what what he did and never really a record of his intimate thoughts. Now, certainly, we can look at all these things and have an understanding into the mind of Christ. But how much clearer to understand when you read Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, when he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So these verses tell us that the mind of Christ in coming to the earth involved two key things here. Number one, humility. Humility is one of those virtues we often talk about but often don't achieve. In practice, humility consists of two parts. First, relinquishing what I have, and second, Receiving something generally generally regarded as inferior. Many of us only relinquish something if we know we're going to get something better to replace it. Many don't relinquish anything at all. Would you give up an hour of day to deeply study the word of God if you knew you would get the mind of Christ? You know, this can be illustrated by a very unique way. It's the way uh, animal dealers would sometimes capture monkeys in the wild. They would take, oftentimes, a, a jar, jars, and they would fasten them into the ground so they couldn't be moved, and they'd fill them with shiny beads. And the shiny beads would catch the eye of the monkeys, and they would come, and they would look, and they would stick their hands through the narrow jar opening, grab a fistful of beads, but they couldn't get their hand out with full fists. Now, instead of just letting go, bringing them out, and trying to figure out another way, those monkeys would hold on to those beads and sit there until the captives came and caged them and then would break the jars off their hands to free them. (laughs) Unfortunately, many of us are like those monkeys. We don't want to give up the shiny beads of this world. We want Christ We want Christianity. We want heaven. We want to know he's there for us. But when it comes to adjusting our life to his pattern, we just don't want to let go of those shiny beads. The Bible says that Jesus did let go. He became a man veiling his attributes, dying for us to save us. Paul also let go of this world. He had everything a man could want, but he counted it as refuge for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. 
So are you starting to understand the mind of Paul and Christ? Are you starting to get a handle on what the key part of Philippians is? The second thing about the mind of Christ was his obedience. Christ died in obedience to the wishes of the Father. Did you ever think it was obedience that carried the Lord to the cross? Oh, it was love for sure, as Galatians 2.20 tells us. But it was also obedience, an obedience that did not always come easy as evidenced from the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ was so obedient that Paul would later pen in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So a question to ask yourself right now as we go forward is, is your life bowing to the will of Jesus Christ? So what should our goal be? What should our goal be in taking this study? We've briefly looked at the mind of Christ and the mind of Paul that we'll continue to explore as we go on. But does Philippians speak of your mind? Well, the answer is quickly, yes, it does. In the same section that speaks of the mind of Christ, Paul also writes in Philippians 2.5, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or as the King James puts it, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You mean to tell me that it's possible for me to have the mind of Christ? Absolutely. That is the whole point of this book. Transforming your mind into his mind. Being in the word, studying him, learning him, understanding him, so that your mind is one with his. Now think about this. The Bible says that the Holy, that the, when we got saved... God sent his Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. If you and I are exchanging our mind for Christ, and we're beginning to think like Christ thought, can you begin to fathom what the Holy Spirit could do through us when he owns our mind? That is an amazing truth that Philippians is going to bring out very, very clearly to us. The mind of Christ and the mind of the believer should be one. Jesus is the pattern. We should be like him. For Jesus, that meant emptying himself in obedience to God the Father. For us, it means centering our lives upon Christ. Christ is to be the center of our universe. For thousands of years before Copernicus, people thought that the moon the sun and the planets and the stars all revolved around the earth. It was known as the uh, Ptolemaic system. It was a good system in that you could foretell the hours of the sunrise and the sunset and you could account for adjustments of movements of planets, but it was wrong. Moreover, because the sun is the center of the solar system and not the earth, as Ptolemy imagined, it was inevitable that the Ptolemaic system would eventually have defects and fail. First, it was not always accurate, particularly in charting the positions of the planets. Under the strain of constantly coming up with corrective calculations, the system finally died out as Copernicus made clear that the sun is the center of the universe. And second, it did not allow for progress. 
New discoveries always went against it. It was only under the system of Copernicus that Newton's theory of gravitativity could be explored and understood. And it's only under this system that spaceflight away from the earth is able to be accomplished. You see the application? You live within a spiritual solar system that is as fixed as the material one we know. Christ is the center of that system. But many Christians today imagine that they're the center of the system. Uh, They pray their prayers. They seek their goals. They try to create a life that they want. And what they do is ask Christ to bless those plans. Now, the system does work to a certain extent. People work hard, save, want to buy a house, they get a house. If they work hard and study, they can become very very successful in their careers. But this is a human-centered system, and it has defects, just as the Ptolemaic system of astronomy had defects. In the first place, it's not quite accurate. It predicts a certain measure of success, but it does not account for failure of the inevitable letdown when a person actually gets the thing for which they've been working for. Any system that makes humans the center of life is doomed to failure. Human effort and thought can never rise to the extent God has created for them. And this is where most Christians find themselves today. They try to use their Christian faith as a means of attaining what they want in life. And when something goes wrong, they immediately think, well, I guess it just doesn't work for me. I prayed and I prayed and I didn't get it. God must be working with someone else, has no time for me. And they become very discouraged. And that's why, frankly, Christians have so little influence in America today. They're living just like the world. They're seeking in goals just like the world. There's nothing that attractive to the world. So it's not that, uh, it, it's, it's not that Christians are completely ignorant. Those who see things the way God wants everything, everyone to see them understand the mind of Christ. Before God, men and women are, are abased and Christ is exalted. Christ is the center of the system, the center of the spiritual universe. The Bible tells us that in this system there is infinite progress for it is based on reality and on the nature of the infinite God. So when your mind is surrendered to Christ and he is working in and through you, he will continually guide you in a path that can only have one conclusion, victory. That's it. There is no alternative. When we surrender to Christ, when we have the mind of Christ, when we're free to let the Holy Spirit lead through us, there is only one outcome and it's victory. It is victory. There's no other way to deny it. The number one goal of the study these next few weeks will be to transfer the focus of your life from yourself to God. It will be to take the focus of your mind and put it on God. It will to take the focus of your heart and put it on God. And when that happens you will finally understand that there is no limit to the life God has waiting for you.
He must increase, and I must decrease. Only in that life will you ever experience the immense success that's waiting for you. Remember, before time, God marked your life out. That life is still there. And see, that's the beauty of Christianity. It doesn't matter where you are today. You might say, yeah, but Craig, man, I've blown it. My, my life isn't good. I've blown it. No. You can never outblow God's grace. Almighty God is calling you to a life of victory. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how great or how awful. He is offering you that life in part because that's what he wants. But also, he's already marked it out for you. So why go another day trying to get by your own way? Why go another moment trying to do life without him? Philippians will give you the most amazing truths you've ever heard. But they'll only mean something when you surrender to them. That is the life it is promised for you. Will you take Christ at his word? And Father, we thank you this morning for the introduction as we get ready to dive into this amazing book. And Lord, like every other book in the Bible, it's designed to draw men and women to saving knowledge and to a life full of grace and hope. And Lord, I know this morning so many of us are struggling. There are difficult things that we've had to deal with, and that's just the reality of life. Some things we have caused, some things we have had no no choice over. But walking with you, we find the immense victory in the mind of Christ to guide us in all truth through all these situations. And this is why Paul could sit in a Roman prison having been beaten within an inch of his life and sing and praise you because he wanted to know the excellency of you, even in your suffering. Lord, I pray that you would give us renewed, excited, surrendered hearts because everyone sitting in this room this morning has now been given the keys to the life God wanted for each one of us. May we be honest and willing to take up our cross and to follow you into a life that only you could have promised. Work in the hearts of every one of us this morning, I pray in Christ's precious name.